Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today is our second episode about the 74th annual DGA Awards, and we're discussing the films nominated in the category of first-time feature film. In case you missed us on Monday, let me reintroduce our panel. Katie Carroll, first AD. Happy to be back. Bill Hardy, first AD and producer. Hello. Roger Mendoza, second AD. Hi, everyone. And Sean O'Banion, producer and fellow podcaster. Hello, Skid. Hello, everybody. Well, it's nice to see all of you. Uh, thanks for coming back. Uh, this should be a fun conversation. Let's turn right to the nominees. The DGA is recognizing six films this year in this category, and we'll discuss them in alphabetical order by director's last name. Since these are smaller films and a lot of listeners may not have seen them yet, I'll share where they're currently streaming and we'll steer clear of major spoilers. The first film on our list is from Maggie Gyllenhaal for The Lost Daughter, produced by and streaming on Netflix. I'll go, I'll go first, but it, it's, not a, it's not the happiest of reviews either. I was really excited for it because I like uh, Olivia Coleman a lot and I, and I like uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal a lot. And I just... Uh, I don't know what it was. I, I couldn't put my finger on it in the middle of the movie. I just realized that it wasn't what I wanted necessarily. Is it because she's a horrible person? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah. I mean, I felt kind of the same way. Actually, what I was really intrigued by were, and this is not a spoiler, the the flashbacks with, um, with uh, the younger version of Olivia Coleman, um, Jesse Buckley, I think. Yeah, Jesse Buckley. I love that stuff, but overall the story was, I don't know, it was, it, it was fine. Not to spoil anything, but the ending, um, I think, I think the ending was really ambiguous. I, I love ambiguous endings. It, it left you, it left you thinking about what happened to the character at the very end and, and you know, whether, whether one thing happens or another. Um, I thought that was kind of great. Um, and it was kind of, uh, Kind of wonderful uh, not to spoil it but they they use an orange every time she's having a happy moment with her daughters and um she doesn't seem to be a very happy or likable character throughout the movie and and she kind of uses this uh doll to try to make up for how horrible she was which i thought was really odd uh, but a good choice and then and and then at the end um she's back with the orange by herself talking to her daughters on the phone and and it leaves you wondering what really happened I'm with you, Roger. Uh, and it wasn't just to the ending. I, I enjoyed this film. I do think that there's a group of films this year for me that in watching, I wasn't completely sold on, but somewhat on reflecting, I enjoyed them more. And I almost think they're worth a second watch. And this is one of the films in that category for me, where I think uh, flashbacks, I'm normally not a big fan of, but they work really effectively in this in the way that it uh, intertwines with the story. I thought that worked. And I think it's a challenging story and I think it takes some to get into, but on reflection, I, I moved it up in my ranking and said, no, that's something that's that's worth watching and I'd like to see again. And for a first time director to handle those nuances and deliver on that, I, I was very impressed. I agree with everything you guys are saying. I think that part of, uh, especially what Roger said, I think that part of my problem was the fact that I recognized Olivia Coleman's character as a horrible person 
And that started affecting my opinion of the movie. And it, that's one of those things that never occurs to you till afterwards. Like, oh, that was a really good performance. I hated her so much. <laughs> but with the, the first time director thing, that was the one thing that I always look for is uh, an ability to condense. And there were a couple, I feel like maybe 10 minutes they could have carved out of there just that were just a little too much long shots of nothing happening story-wise even. They really conveyed the idea that she was a very good person at the beginning and everybody else around her was horrible. And then you start realizing that she is a really shitty person. <laughs> and and maybe those people around her aren't so bad, even how even though and, and you might be you might be seeing them reflected through how she sees them rather than 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 how, how they really are. And and I think she 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 as a character saw everything as uh, as annoying. <laughs> Everything was getting in her way. It took me a while to get through that before I was like, oh, this person is horrible. And, and then you start realizing that maybe this person's deeply troubled. You know, Roger, although I don't, I think it's fair to warn people that this isn't like a fight club situation where no. everything's going to get twisted. I was like, oh, because they were rather horrible people as well. I think the people that she was surrounded by on the, you know, on this vacation. We're all horrible people. <laughs> that was one of those things. She killed it. I hated the movie at the beginning. I tried to watch it three times and, and I kept watching it. So I was like, wow, this is really, really well done. So nuanced. Yeah, but in terms of that, I, I, I wonder, you know, I mean, she's an actor, first and foremost. She's been acting since she was a child. Olivia Coleman's phenomenal. Dakota Johnson as well has worked with, you know, Fincher, a lot of great directors now. And so you wonder if a lot of that nuance is from the direction or it's just the greatness of Olivia Coleman and the steadfastness of somebody like Dakota, you know, I, that's why I was sort of looking more to story to see uh, in terms of first time director, what she was doing kind of to what Bill was saying, you know, did she trim it down? Was it, was it very focused? Um, and, and for me, I don't, I, I enjoyed the film, but I don't know that it was, you know, it certainly wasn't my top. Well, I think that point about actors carrying the film, it's an interesting take on that. I mean, with those actors with the kind of resumes they have, I think if the director didn't have a steady hand, you'd see performances across the board as far as, and all of this I thought integrated really well. I mean, you bring up Ed Harris and the other characters as well that I think are balanced in there. And I do think that actors generally, in, in my opinion, if directing the one thing where you don't get any help is dealing with the other actors, you are responsible for getting those actors to integrate and deliver the performances. Again, you can see where great actors can um, make a difference, but generally when that's the case, it feels like there's something else that indicates it. Either actors like being in different movies or when there's kids and the kids are bad, that generally means to me that the director was not doing it as actors. But that, And I didn't get that from this. That being said, it's hard to say not being on set. I completely agree with you on that. Like it was the, she did a couple episodes of the deuce too, I think. And it's, uh, you know, it, I think that the ensembleness of it, I think she really was in there. Just like you were saying. I agree. Well, let's move on to our next film. Another actor, uh, Rebecca Hall for passing was produced by and is streaming on Netflix. I like this one. I, I'm not sure why I was hesitant at first. I think I just, there's something in my uh, brain that hesitates on black and white, modern black and white movies. Like it makes me want to wonder why they're doing it. But everything, uh, once I started this one, it really flowed. I liked it a lot. Uh, 
of the three actor directed movies in this category this was my favorite an adaptation of a short story or novella i think which i had to go online and research the ending because i really liked it and the person i was watching with had a totally different interpretation than i did and we're all right <laughs> okay, careful dancing around those blowers there but i know what you mean bill she did it I'm going to say, Bill, she did it. <laughs> but which she? Which she? Yeah. Yeah, I liked it. I I, I responded to the black and white, uh, particularly as it relates to the storyline in terms of a mixed race woman being able to pass in white society in the 20s and, and to take away color from the movie and so you you have sort of shades of gray as opposed to one or the other although at the same time i did think that um the the woman who plays Rini, um tessa thompson yeah i i didn't tessa thompson thank you i didn't quite believe that she could pass even though she is mixed race i didn't believe that she would have passed in 1920 or 25 for a white woman the way that ruth nega could and did in the film but you also get the added benefit of that uh, helps with the blown out light and the the absence of color. Um, I, I instantly went back to uh, there's even a scene in the snow where I went right back to high school and uh, a native son where Bigger's on the roof in the snowstorm and he's surrounded by white. And I said to the teacher, but can it just be snowing? But uh, well, so that's always the the comparison I always make in my head. But to get me there, but I yeah, I really liked it. I love the performances. I found the movie kind of dull. That's an interesting take on that, Rogers. The performances, but the movie itself. Um, I think I might have to do something with expectations. I resisted watching it. I sort of made assumptions about what the story was going to be, and that the story I assumed would be told was not that interesting to me to spend two hours with. And so I missed it when it originally came out. But when it came on the list, obviously I watched it in anticipation of the podcast. And I found that the story was much more nuanced and gripping and engaging as far as the different themes and even passing as the name of the film, like what it means to the characters. Like it's, yes, it's about passing as white, but it's also about passing in groups at all. And those nuances surprised me and engaged me. And so um, I think with those expectations being low or actually those expectations being incorrect about the direction of the story, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. And in fact, I think this film is great. I might have to watch it again. I felt like I was watching a stage play the entire time. I felt like it was, it was, it was meant for the stage much more than it was meant for, for that Academy aspect ratio that they used for Roger, I, I felt that way in the beginning, like those opening scenes when she's going to the shops, that almost feels added on. And then when they settle in to seeing each other at the restaurant and then going up to the hotel room, I also thought that we were going to end up with a largely stage play approach. But as it moved through the other scenes and her husband comes into the picture and I thought it sort of expanded in ways that served it well. But if I can see getting that impression from the beginning. The passage of time was almost entirely lost. That was the where I got the play feeling at first. And it was the one, oh, well, she's a first time director. That was the only time 
that crossed my mind in this movie. Never felt like any time passed. Just felt like we went from scene to scene. Yeah, it's like the the movie takes place over like eight months, I think, and it came across as like three days. That that's how I felt. Maybe it was the pacing that threw me off. I think those are fair criticisms as well. So let's move to the third film on our list, Tatiana Hueso for Prayers for the Stolen, produced by and streaming again on Netflix. It's probably one of my favorite ones in the list. It's a really good job at making me feel the sense of dread that those um, families were going through. I think I, read, I was doing some research on it. It took like nine months to shoot this movie. I think they had like an immersive like training camp for, for the kids so they can learn to act. And they brought in everybody locally and they shot everything on location. In that kind of place, I imagine it must have been really difficult. Um, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the cinematography. I loved the performances. The, when, when the little girls go to adults I, I didn't, or, or adolescents, I didn't expect that at all. And um, I think it, it built on that. And I, I, I felt a sense of dread throughout the entire movie of what it must be like and why people leave their families to come to other countries. I think it's worth noting right up front that uh, the director, while this is her debut theatrical feature, as a cinematographer and doing documentaries, she has quite a bit of experience. And I think you certainly see that experience and how this film is, is put together. It has a very documentary feel to it uh, throughout. It did. I didn't feel like I was watching a narrative. I felt like I was watching a cinema verite documentary or direct cinema, something shot by the Maisel brothers. <laughs> It was, um, it was wonderful. Yeah, I was. It wasn't something that I mean. If they hadn't, you hadn't asked me to be on the show, I probably wouldn't have watched it as soon as I did. Uh, but I really thought it was excellent. And and from a filmmaking standpoint, you know, with her experience as a DP and things like that, just story wise, there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie. Um, without spoilers, I mean, just in terms of logistics, right? I mean, a group of ADs, we're talking fire, we're talking quarries blowing up, we're talking children in every shot uh, from very small children, probably, you know, seven years old to, to like, you know, 12, 13 years old, just kind of extraordinary that she was able to get these performances, especially from the smaller children. Smaller children, children that weren't actually actors in any sense. I don't think anybody on the, on the movie was actually an actor, were they? It, it was, it was the, the mother's performance was amazing. You know, this is one that's interesting. I was not as engaged with the film. I found the uh, documentary approach, I just found a little distance in watching it. And I just did not really sink into the story as much as I did with some of these other nominees. But the things you guys are bringing up and sort of the credit as a first time director, that part's almost invisible. To your point, Roger, it feels like we're watching a actual documentary on some level that I think that that is really powerful and, and certainly to her credit. I also love the nuanced performances when the kids were in school and learning with, with the teacher that that those are some of my favorite scenes because he's like the only the only perspective from the outside that they get that the only sense of, uh, of calm or, or that they're worth it or talented or like the only appreciation to get from any other adult that's not like hide cut your hair. I, I really did feel multiple times, like you said, perspective, and that's always my favorite topic is with the uh, movies with kids. I, I really felt it here. The 
kids are aware of what's going on, but they're not fully aware of what's going on. And the, the outside world comes in through the teacher, just like you were saying. Multiple times, I was like, why don't we should be telling people to watch? And anytime somebody says, why are all these people coming to the border? I don't understand why they don't just stay where they are. I feel like here's here's a perfect example. It's just one. But here, this movie, I, I really thought that part came across really well. The family trapped where they are, just trying to live their life um, aspect of it and the dread at the same time. Well, Bill, and to follow up on that, I feel like we all agree that this movie was better than Belfast. Sort of. <laughs> I don't know. For me, I'm kind of. I like. I, I like them both. I, I look for, for a lot of the same reasons. But, I, but these kids, uh, I did have a different reaction to these girls' performances than I did to the boy in Belfast. Absolutely, the fact that it's really three characters that are very important to the story. That's really six actresses, right? Is that? Did I understand? Did I see the translation properly as far as the? Because the, the whole um, the, the hair lip thing was where I was caught up with that. I started going, oh, my God, did this girl actually have the surgery while they were shooting the movie? <laughs> like that, 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 yeah. That's when I started doing the research. Like I started looking at the articles online about the, the director and everything. So anybody notice there weren't any fathers? Well, they, 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 Anna mentions at one point that, that dad's gone away to earn money to help us out, but clearly, you know, she just, her understanding of it is not reality. The hillside full of people on cell phones, that, that was the one that brought me into it right there. I was like, that's probably the most relatable thing to everybody. And where they live, this is where everybody has to stand for their cell phones to work. Like, that totally sucked me in. It was such a small detail, but very well executed. Well, also, how again, um, I, I don't think it's a spoiler. It's not a major plot moment, but there's a bit in a hair salon where all of the families are kind of in there and people are talking and there's girls getting haircuts and, and all of a sudden the militia rolls in and there's gunfire outside and they all go under the tables and then it suddenly stops just as quickly and then everybody comes up and there's no discussion it's just like this is our life this is just what you know we you know it's like la people when there's an earthquake the kids go under the desk and then you come back up and like well now they're one okay i thought that was exceptionally well rendered they're so accustomed to the violence but um it's just part of life it's what you get used to which i thought was very 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 well done i agree with you i don't think there's enough movies with representation where you can actually go out with these little cameras now and shoot whatever you want in the middle of the woods and, and I thought that's what would happen when everybody started getting these little DSLRs that could shoot 4K. And, and um, it's nice to see that people are actually going and making stories about people or underserved communities and giving people a better understanding what the world is like, because that's what I thought cinema should be. I mean, that's how I related to most of my life when I didn't know how to express a feeling. I guarantee that a movie would explain to me that that's how I should feel. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's how I felt. That's what that is. It's... Um, it's wonderful. I think it's a, out of all the movies on, on the list, I think that's the one that made me feel the most. Well, we'll move on to our next film. Uh, but before we do, in case folks are worried that we've been blocking Katie out, it's just because she hadn't watched any of the first three films when we sat down for the, <laughs> I'm back, for the I'm battle. Back. So uh, Katie will expect you to kick us off on the next one. Lin-Manuel Miranda has been nominated for Tick, Tick, Boom. That was produced by and streaming on One More Time, Netflix, uh, I interviewed the editors of this film on the podcast for The Curious. That was season nine, episode 12. Katie, why don't you tell us what you thought about Tick, Tick, Boom? 
I love Tick, Tick, Boom. I knew of Jonathan Larson and honestly, without knowing a whole lot, I kind of thought it was about the writing and the presenting of Rent, not realizing that all of this happens, spoiler, before he even writes Rent. I hadn't really known about Tick, Tick, Boom as a production. So when I was watching it, I was like a little bit confused about, okay, we're flashing to a three-person play that's also telling this. But once I let go of understanding the concept of what is being presented and just enjoyed the story, the story is fantastic. All the different characters are so great, right down to, but also like, the set dressing and the art direction. I mean, that's finally what an actual New York apartment looks like instead of these giant apartments that everyone's walking around in. Oh, I live in a shoebox. Like, no, you freaking don't. This is a shoebox. This is what people live in. Uh, the door doesn't work, so you throw the keys down. The swimming aspect of it. I just, I loved every moment of this movie and with the songs as well. The songs are great. My favorite. I'll chime in now. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Um, a, a lot of that, I think, is just down to that actor. I mean, I just am a huge fan of Andrew Garfield. I'm not much for modern musicals, to be honest. So, you know, for me to be engaged with this one, it, for me, it's a mark that it's a well-made film and that it's experiential and that I was drawn into Jonathan Larson's story. I also didn't know about Tick, Tick, Boom, though I, I'd heard of Rent, still never seen it, but I did enjoy it. Um, you know, looking at these films again, four out of these five people that are nominated have been on sets and sort of understand how things go. For me, it's a bit of a cheat for somebody like Tatiana to be up against Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, that guy, yeah, he hasn't done film, but he's directed stage musicals that are astonishing. So I did enjoy it. It's not my favorite, but it's close to the top. That's also one thing is that someone who's done so much work directing stage to move to features, that's one reason I did love this, is often when you bring something that is a stage production to the feature film, i.e. West Side Story, like we talked about a couple of days ago, that it can sometimes feel very closed in. And I felt like when we were at the stage diner and it was an actual practical diner, but then it became wide and you, could, you felt the stage presence or uh, his roommate moving into the new apartment and the dance that didn't look, I mean, it clearly wasn't. So it, it felt like it was in the real world. And that's one other thing that I think a lot of stage directors sometimes lose aspect of because they're still just so focused on what can happen right in front of me. They're not necessarily thinking about where can I take the camera? It's like, what can I put in front of the camera? Not where can I take the camera? Which is a different mindset. It did make it feel like New York in the 90s. I thought yes, that was wonderful. very much so. They picked the perfect locations for it, the perfect places to still look like that. It felt lived in. And I guess that's a testament to the production design. Yes. I think to, to some extent, that's probably, you know, not unlike Lin-Manuel's story. I worked with him years ago in a Disney movie. I think he probably worked three, four days. Uh, it was a Peter Hedges wrote and directed. So he's also been around these people, but he was also a New York guy who spent many years trying to get Hamilton going and, and, and look at the massive success. So I think there's a kinship between him and, and Jonathan Larson. I'm not as into this film as some of the others on this list from the first time director perspective. 
Uh, I did, as I advertised earlier, and uh, you know, obviously uh, pitch for the podcast. I enjoyed talking to the editors and seeing the challenges they faced. They love working with Lin Manuel Miranda and sort of how those things came together to tell the story. Uh, I don't think that the music is as engaging on this. I think that was part of why I just didn't really get into it the way I did even some of the other films on this list. And I do think it's a little biased again in this category where this is the one on the list that at least it's the only one on this list that has a directorial team. So they were DJ signatories from the start. I just get a sense that like this is a major production where Lin-Manuel Miranda has lots and lots of professional high-end people on his team. Support, yeah. Which again, it's not, I think the film is great. Uh, I enjoyed it. I think that there's challenges in putting together this story uh, from all the different aspects, because it's not just the play of Tick, Tick, Boom. You know, it's all the elements of how it came together and the the larger picture that I think Lin-Manuel Miranda gets credit for, but I'm not sure that it's this level of achievement I'm seeing on some of the other films on this list. That's my take. I I, I agree with the, uh, just a couple of things where I was like, "Ah, the songs just weren't, I'm a a guy that's into musicals, but uh, the music for this one just wasn't there for me. And that's when I went, oh, well, yeah, that's why this one never actually got made. Like my problem I think was the screenplay it was the organization of the story, like Katie was saying, whereas maybe I just knew it was about the guy that wrote Rent and that confused me going into it. Or because I really like the idea of recreating this videotape of the one performance of this play. But I don't I didn't I was too confused at the beginning of why he was on the stage. I, that could have been solved with a a slightly different presentation at the beginning i think but i love the scene in the diner where i I was like oh i know who all these people are like that's my favorite scene (laughs) by far and as an ad logistically i started thinking that would be both heaven and hell because i'm enough (laughs) of a fan of all those people like oh this would be one of my greatest days please don't let me fuck this day up (laughs) for folks who are not familiar it's not a spoiler to say that they have all, all these notable theater people doing cameos in this one scene and uh yeah i talked about that with the editor as well where you know you're not just going to leave somebody on the cutting room floor when you've had them show up for this kind of work i mean that's uh to all your points there's a lot of work in that also just who do you give what number to like who like is patty lapone gonna be pissed that brian darcy james is number 32 and she's number 33 or (laughs) like at what point do they care or not care literally the smallest thing could matter but also can you just imagine the size of the base camp on that day <laughs> it's like a marvel base camp yeah, it totally is. <laughs> just on less money <laughs> yeah i mean I, i'm sure they shot that part probably during covid in which case they were all those people were completely free like yeah i'll show up why not and so they probably all just got scale for the day because they're doing a favor and back to get to your point of yeah you know, Lin-Manuel could probably just call in a whole lot of favors. And as soon as one person says yes, then 27 others are going to say yes. You just need that first person to say yes. And then once they realize, oh, this scene could kind of be really awesome with all of these people in it, as opposed to just two or three, oh, who else can we start calling? And then it just snowballs. Like, oh, do I need to write a new line for this person who just said they'll show up and bring their friends, even though it's COVID, you can't bring a friend, but they showed up with a friend. Like, okay, how is this going to go? 
do you think that was just one day of filming? I feel like that was that was a couple of days of filming. Yeah. So actually, I, you're reminding me, I'm pretty sure one of the takeaways from talking to the others was actually they did this in passes. And so with the COVID considerations, like it was single people in there and then they brought in the dancers and extra people in a separate pass and built it. I'm not going to say how many days, I don't recall, but it was a lot of um, digital work as well to like integrate all of that. And so to the degree that that's a lot of work for a director to keep track of, like, but also there's a village, right, of people and talent that it requires to pull off a scene like that, particularly under COVID and, you know, with all the technology involved as well. I think it blurs the line about where the responsibility is. Credit, surely, to um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, but again, lots and lots of people involved. I mean, often, like, how often do you storyboard a diner scene? But chances are good it was storyboarded because that's one way to help you keep track. Oh, shoot, we still need this scene or this shot where you're going to see that person in the background. We got to incorporate it. Storyboarding a, a diner scene that's not a fight is probably not often, but probably could have helped in this case if they didn't. And if they did, probably good call. Yeah, and those editors have to know where they're going to stitch. Okay, yes. when the camera moves to here, here's where we stitch. Yes. In which case, the directing team on the ground needs to know, oh, we need to give them a stitch. Because like, yeah. editors can only stitch so much if you don't give it to them. Loved it. <laughs> of the two musicals, of the two musicals on, 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 this, on these lists, this is definitely the better one. So we agree that this one's better than West Side Story. We're all giving yeah. our vote to Tick, Tick, Boom over West Side Whoa. Story. <laughs> <laughs> maybe because I find it more contemporary. Yes. Maybe I, I, I think I, I think there was no reason to do West Side Story. There's no reason to retell that. Um, but but uh, and maybe because I'm a big Lin Manuel fan, I think he's, yeah. he's he's as close as we can get to Shakespeare. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like yeah, he's an amazing lyricist, and I, I know, I, I just, I thought it was, I thought it was brilliantly done. Yes. Well, the fifth nominee on our list is Michael Sarnowski for Pig. It was produced by Neon, and it's currently streaming on Hulu. Favorite, favorite movie of the list. Roger, say more. <laughs> I watched it last night. I was like John Wick with a pig. <laughs> And it's more like, uh, uh, like Buddha, John Wick, <laughs> that cooks. It was amazing. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that in, in the world, in the age of John Wick, I think we all thought that there was going to be some ass kicking, but it was in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> Inverse ass kicking. <laughs> I, I've never seen a movie get you to a climax and then de-escalate everything. It was, it was instead of escalating at the climax, it de-escalated. And I thought that, that was brilliantly done. Instead of taking you to a place where you're like, yes, here we go. It, it was like, okay, we're going to turn it all down. They do that in a way that's really effective where that, to your point, they escalate the action. And as that de-escalates, I think that the emotional tension and sort of the story behind the story, the story behind all the stories comes together in a way towards the end that, is even more powerful given where your sort of adrenaline on those other scenes goes. And again, we're trying to avoid the spoilers on this, but this is a film where I had expectations to really enjoy it in one direction. It didn't go in that direction and still it really carried me along. Also, Roger, my favorite film on this list. I will say, look, first off, I did love the movie. I thought it was great. 
I have a little bit of an issue about complete and utter lack of female characters. I get that it's really about these three guys, but between Nicolas Cage and Adam Arkin and pining for wives who literally their only personality trait is that their husbands love them. We know nothing about them other than their husbands love them. We don't know their hobbies. We don't know what they like to do in the morning. We don't know if they were 20 years younger, 20 years older, the same age as their husband. We know nothing about them. So arguably the biggest female character in the entire movie is the pig. I got a little bit of an issue with that. Otherwise, but I still did love the movie. So, I mean, I know I'm not supposed to point out a problem with an overall story arc without a solution, and I don't really have a solution. That's just one little thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I, I, I kind of look at it in another way. It was like hmm. the uh, women were the most important characters in the movie because they had they're were important were to the men, but they weren't important because of them. So how wonderful must these women have been? I know we didn't learn anything about them, but all these men were broken because of their loss. Right. So the men are broken because of their loss. So they are the band-aids for the men. That doesn't mean you know anything about the women. It's putting them on a pedestal. You're like, did they deserve it? Were they assholes? They might have been assholes, but these men love them. They might have been the kindest, sweetest people on the face of the planet, but these men love them. When you don't know anything about the women, except that the men love them, that tells you more about the men than the women. Sure. So I understand your point, and I kind of got that, but it's like, but given that it was written by a man, that's his perspective as well, thinking, well, I'm telling you all about these women. It's like, no, you're telling me about the men who love the women. You're not telling me anything about the women. And considering that's a main like, point of why they are now doing what they're doing or now of why they are where they are. It is sort of an extreme approach to the Bechtel test to just not have any women in the movie at all. Wait, what? <laughs> talking about what? Why? Well, there's, no, there's no issue about what they're talking about because they're not really that many characters who are female across the board. I'm just saying, all that being said, I still liked the movie. It was definitely my favorite on the list um, because, you know, if I'll go back to my first time director thing, totally oblivious to it on this one. Like I, everything, I'm, I'm totally hung up right now on everything that Katie said because I'm like, shit, I am such a misogynist because <laughs> I never even thought about yeah. that. But I, other than that, I like I, I never lost track of where I was. I never got uh, bored with the uh, pacing. I was engaged the entire time. It kept me interested. And uh, and I thought that I fully expected Nicolas Cage to run away with this thing, too. You know, I thought that I imagined over the topness. So if nothing else, keeping him at a level, maybe he did that on his own. But keeping him at the level that he is the entire movie, I, I highly applaud that. 100% agree with that. I don't know a lot about this film, but I, I, I did some searching for articles and didn't find that much. But the ones that I did found suggest to me, and someone can correct me if they know better and I'm wrong, but that Michael Cernowski wrote the script, got an agent. That agency also represented Nick Cage. So he saw the script and agreed to do it. Um, and... In the interview with Michael, he just talked about that Nick trusted him to sort of follow the direction and such. And so I think it was definitely a collaborative effort. And I think that, you know, Nick Cage, you really don't know what you're going to get when he's on the billboard as far as what kind of role it's going to be. But on this one, 
I'm sure he brought it, uh, you know, to when we talk about what actors bring to it. And so it's to his credit. But I also think that it fits so well in with the overall film that I want to give credit to the director as well. Watching it, you just imagine him saying, do less, Nick. Just do less. <laughs> just bring it down on every take based on what <laughs> Nick usually does. But I thought it was um, even visually, I'm just very assured every shot was so well composed and the overall tone there are moments i mean as as roger was saying you go in maybe expecting john wick especially because of nick cage and his ability to sort of ham it up and then it just doesn't do that at all and it stayed remarkably consistent um in in, in like every way so it yeah for me it was the top of my list as well and like the bakery scene super impressed like i think two shots the entire scene High and wide the whole high, time. High and wide, it? and then just him at the end for that little button at the end. Um, that takes some serious self-assuredness to only do two shots. Now, who knows if he's like, well, let's do coverage just in case. And in the editing room, they made the decision. But even in the editing room, if you make that call, like this is how I'm going to play this scene, that takes some guts to do. And but also like trusting your actors, but getting your actors to play an emotional scene only from a high and wide. Did you get the sense of, that um, um, playing that high and wide gave you a sense of detachment, which yes. feels like that's what's the character's entire uh, motivation after after he lost that person, right. is that, that he was going to be as detached as possible to let go of ego, to let go of everything, because maybe that's what got him there. And I think holding that with the person that might have been the closest to him was really, really good. That was a great piece of storytelling. And if not the closest to him, the closest to the person who's closest to him. So therefore, yes, by yeah. default, important. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. It, it sends, it's right back. Yeah. It's. Well, and also given the beginning, and I won't say what happens, obviously, but there's, you know, there is violence um, in, in the picture. Uh, there's a confrontation between Cage and Arkin that is just rife with tension. Uh, because of their history and and what you know this confrontation that they're having over who's responsible for things or not responsible for things and um, I kept waiting for you know explosion I won't say if there is one but it, it's pretty impressive uh, direction and then some of the cooking scenes kind of reminded me of chef it made you it's hard to do a cooking scene yet still demonstrate the love that you put into making the food like, I think Chef did that really, really well. Julie and Julia did that occasionally pretty well. But there's a way just to show that you're putting love into the food that you're cooking so that when people eat it, they feel that love. That was done well, too. So even with my issues, I still love the movie. There's a, there's a line, which I won't give away either, but there's a specific line related to that uh, that Cage says that if, if it wasn't delivered in the right way, you'd be like, come on but it is delivered in the perfect way that you just go, okay, I buy it. From this character, from this guy, yeah, I buy it. I think he should get an award for his performance. Somebody needs to give Nicholas back on, give him something, bring him back. Yeah. <laughs> get the nomination for this, the big studio movie, and then that'll get him like 2 million per day for all of the schluck that he does for another <laughs> 10 years. And then he'll make yet another comeback. Well, his next his next movie is a, is a massive excuse for him to dive into his Nicolas Cage-ness again. So we'll see what he does. But I kind of dread it and can't wait. Like, <laughs> Well, in talking about next films and bringing it back to the director, I am a little disappointed to see that 
Michael Cernoski's next film appears that it's going to be A Quiet Place 3, which is not a series of films that has really amazed me and a little disappointed to hear that that's where we'll see him next. Maybe he'll bring something unique and awesome to it, or maybe he's just cashing in. Make that money, boy. (laughs) (laughs) One for them, one for you. One for them, one for you. This is another film where it's solid, and if there's crew out there listening, I'd love to have somebody on the show to talk more about how it came together. Uh, it's not a DGA team, uh, or they didn't accept the offer of membership if it, if it was if it was given. But again, it will be interesting to see what he does next, because this, I think, is a very accomplished film. The last of our first-time directors is Emma Seligman for Shiva Baby. It was produced by Utopia, and it's currently streaming on HBO Max. I like this one, but but probably for the reasons I'm supposed to get that, like my shoulders up by my ears feeling while I watch it. And so the director did a good job of giving me that feeling, but all I wanted to do was escape, which is what our hero wants to do in the movie. But at the same time, I, if all I want to do is escape, I don't know, I'm torn because like, okay, great. Then you conveyed the message you wanted to convey, but if all I want to do is escape, then that leaves me wanting to escape your movie. I, I don't know. I'm torn on that. And it was also, it was funny. I True. laughed multiple times True. and this is a very heavy category this year. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure how much of a, my enjoyment of the movie was the relief factor. It was like, Oh, Oh, it, it, it takes place after a funeral, but uh, nobody dies in this movie. <laughs> I, th- I think it's the only one in this category. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of backstory on this. As I understand it, uh, it's an expansion of a short film that Emma Sullivan did as well. And I think that it shows the strain a little bit of filling in a short film. I think the laughs and the moments that work in this movie probably worked great in about you know 20 or 30 minutes. But I think the expanded story, the whole thing felt just a little off for me. And I don't know that this was a successful transition from short to full feature. I kind of, I appreciated that she felt like she had been there for a really long time. So I think there's a world where it helped that it was a little bit longer and that like, can we go? Yes, just find your father. Great. But like, it takes, like you spend an hour trying to leave and so much happens within an hour just trying to get out of there. So there might be a little bit of both of, trying to create story, but also you have the built-in story of trying to leave. Yeah, I, I, I almost, I, I had the moment during the movie where I was like, oh, this could be a nice one-act play. Like, it does flow that way to the confined space. I, I, I don't know why you're making that face, kid, but... <laughs> that's, my, that's, my th- that's my thinking face, Bill. That's my thinking oh, okay. face. Sorry, sorry. I thought that was like you going... No, I don't know, but maybe dinner theater. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, if it had been any longer, it would have been too long for sure with that, uh, the idea of the used to be a short film, an expansion of the one joke short kind of thing. But it, it was on the verge of being too much for me, but I, I gave it as a, okay, good job. They cut it right there. To do this a dramedy or... It, it, it felt like there was a lot of slapstick to me in, in some sense. Yeah, I think that was the whole play aspect. Like, it was almost like there were pulses and dialogue for the audience to laugh. Like, you know, it, it's a timing thing. I did like the parents' performances. Polly Draper, the mom. Polly Draper, Fred Melamed. 
Yeah, they were they were fantastic. I mean, they've been brilliant for 40, 50 years already. So, I mean, that's right up there with everything else we've been talking about every now and then you have someone like, even if they're mediocre, they're mediocre is better than everybody else. So. But I, I hope, I think they helped carry her performance. And I, I, love, I love the feeling of being so uncomfortable in a situation that you created that's coming to light. I don't know, it just felt very, felt like something that would happen to me at some point in my life. <laughs> You're just in that uncomfortable situation. You don't know how to get out of it. And I think that was that. that if, if there was anything that I liked about the movie, is that that was really, really well conveyed. That you that the, the director did a good job at making you feel that tension and feeling uncomfortable, almost like she lived that situation at some point in her life. I guarantee you, she did. I mean, granted, <laughs> this is probably a heightened version of it. Guarantee you, it happened like that, or at least something where. You're showing up and you have the story with your parents. Okay, you're going to take meetings. You have graduated. You have a plan because everybody <laughs> needs to present a good face to the community. Not that you're uh, doing nefarious. <laughs> not nefarious, but... Like, yeah, heaven forbid a 22-year-old not know exactly what she's going to do for the rest of her life and that parents would be okay with that. <laughs> no, we have to tell everyone, no, we're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. We have plans. Our plans are better than everybody else's plans. It's all a competition. You're going to be a lawyer. <laughs> exactly. Let's get you an internship. <laughs> I thought that was so well done. It was so... So very like like I think it, it, even if it was a Jewish story, it crosses all the boundaries when it comes to family and how they treat each other and their children. Mm -hmm. it, 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 that was the best part of the entire film for me. Yes. Well, I think that's our take on the six films. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen them, you can draw your own conclusions. There is one other thing I want to touch base on. Sean, we teased earlier your podcast. Why don't you tell listeners a little about what you've got on the air and where people can find them? Yeah, so uh, thank you. We have I have two. One of them is called Stage 16, named after the famed Warner Brothers soundstage. Uh, and it's just my buddy who used to be a PA who's now long out of the business. And we just talk about pop culture stuff. But I also host co-host one called Character, um, which is where my co-host, who's an NPR journalist, and I uh, sit down and talk to some of our favorite character actors from the last you know, 30, 40 years of film. Um, first three guests were Mark Strong, then we talked to Richard Schiff from The West Wing, and then we talked to Dale Dickey from Breaking Bad and uh, Winter's Bone. And just for me as a movie geek, I, I mean, I, I try not to be Chris Farley from SNL going, remember that scene where you did this? Like, that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, sometimes I dip into that, but we try and keep it pretty professional. Uh, but it's uh, it's a really fun show. It's on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Um, it's also on Anchor.fm, and uh, our uh, social handles are at PodCharacter. I've heard all three. They're great. They're really great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Sean, I've enjoyed your podcast as well, and of course, want to welcome you to the club of podcasting. Glad to have you on the team. <laughs> Thanks, kid. But the other thing you teased on us, and speaking of joining the club, you really going to submit your book before we do this again next year? Are we gonna, <laughs> you going to pick up your DJ? <laughs> I think I that know you've got the days. sailed, man. I don't, I don't think I have it anymore. <laughs> but yeah, I probably did have the days if I tried. I mean, the cost of mailing your physical book from Europe would be astronomical. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore. You can, it's all digital. 
It's all digital now. <laughs> It's all digital now. So behind the times. I see. Now we're dating wow. ourselves. Suddenly right. Sean's interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me go grab my scanner. Let's scan them all with my iPhone, one at a time, one page at a time, one posture at a time. All right. Well, either way, Sean, we'll consider giving you a pass again next year. Guys, this was a lot of fun, as it always is. Roger, glad you could join us as well. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks everybody. That concludes our coverage of nominees for the 74th Annual DJ Awards. And that's a wrap on Season 10 of the podcast. No break this time between seasons, however. Season 11 will be focused on Oscar nominations in the technical categories, and it'll kick off next week. If you're interested in learning more about the podcast, please visit our website, belowtheline.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll find links to all of our social media, and it's easy to peruse past episodes. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and loyal listeners for sticking with us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us. This has been Below the Line.